Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Timothy Beale about his book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. And in it, he talks about this concept of the Anthropocene. We don't really define it in the interview, uh, so I just wanted to quickly sketch what it means. So we usually talk about the earth in terms of geologic time. So those are going to be a time periods that span a very long period of time. And most geologists would say that we're currently in the Holocene era and have been for the past 12,000 years since the last, the end of the last major ice age. Um, so you can see how like that denotes a shift in the geological landscape uh, as we come out of that ice age and into a new era. Um, but increasingly in the past like five to ten years, people have talked about the current era as not the Holocene but the Anthropocene. In other words, humans have had the most significant impact on the state of the planet uh, and that's found primarily through climate change. And so that's that's what's denoted by Anthropocene. It's a way of speaking about um, this current time when humans have had the most significant uh, impact on the Earth's geology and ecosystems and whatnot. So I hope that helps uh, shape the context for this discussion and that you enjoy this interview. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Timothy Beal, Distinguished University Professor and Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. He's the author of 16 books, including the Book of Revelation, a biography, and the Rise and Fall of the Bible. And he has some other books on the Bible as well, worth checking out. And he's also written When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene, uh, published by Beacon Press this year. And we're going to be discussing that today. So, Tim, welcome to OnScript. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm really happy to be with you. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, looking forward when I saw this book came out. It has an intriguing title. And as I got into the book, it's even more provocative than I initially thought. Um, and, and so I want to just start right in with how this book begins. So the first line of the book is, this is a book about our denial of death as a species. And as you note in the intro, uh, the first chapter or so, um, you know, a lot of people, if they hear that phrase, our denial of death as a, as a species, they jump immediately to the fact that we often are in denial about the fact that we will one day die. We might acknowledge that tacitly, but, but we have all sorts of practices and belief systems and defense mechanisms in place to protect us from our own impending death. And, and you actually mean something different by the phrase, our denial of death as a species. So what is it that you mean to address when you speak of that? Yeah, um, yeah. there's a great book on the denial of death, the way you're describing, called uh, The Denial of Death <laughs> um, by Ernest, Ernest Becker, which I re highly recommend and has a big influence on this book. But I'm asking whether 
there there is a, a kind of parallel kind of denial of death as a species that is to say of of uh the real possibility of of extinction that we will not go on forever and so um and maybe that we don't have an awful lot of time left as a species. Um, it's that kind of denial that I'm really trying to trying to understand, trying to start a conversation about, and and trying to really to to break through and to to find resources. You know, on on the one hand, I think religion has really contributed to that denial, to our inability to to see that, which has really, you know, exacerbated our 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 crisis situation now. But I think religion also, and especially Christianity and uh, Hebrew scriptures in particular, have resources to that can help us break through that denial and even find hope, real hope, deep hope, as opposed to shallow optimism on the horizon of a finite human future. So this is this book is not another before it's too late book. Um, it's a what if it's already too late book. And, you know, maybe it's not. I hope it's not. But what if it is? Shouldn't we be having some kind of conversation about that? Yeah, I you know, when I read that beginning part to the to the book, I, I have to admit, like I felt I felt the weightiness of it. Um, and perhaps as part of what you wanted to provoke in in readers. Um, and I don't think you're you're doing it just as a sort of rhetorical move at the beginning, um, because there's there is that real possibility of the extinction of of human beings, given the massive and significant changes to the climate that humans have brought about and are and continue to accelerate. And so, you know, throughout the book, you're you're drawing on religious uh, traditions and resources, and and you yourself are also a biblical scholar. So you teach religion, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and then you're also trained as a, a Hebrew Bible scholar. You were in the program I was in well before me with some uh, really uh, fantastic uh, scholars that you were able to study with at Emory. Um, so maybe just give our listeners a sense of um, the the sources you're drawing from as you begin to think about this, like facing death as a species. Yeah. Well, I think um, that, you know, if religion has had a big part in getting us into this mess, then religion needs to have a big part in, in getting us out of it. Um, I'm in the, um, my friend Nadia Bowles-Weber says we have two options for what we do with our inherited traditions, let's say in this case, biblical tradition, um, and they are cremate or compost. So, you know, on the one hand, burn it down, blow it up, get rid of it, cremate it. On the other hand, compost, like, go, you know, see what else can grow uh, from that. And that's sort of how I'm returning to scriptures in this in this book. On the one hand, I, I spend quite a lot of time um, trying to trying to understand how a few, really a couple verses often taken out of context um, from the, the Old Testament, from Hebrew scriptures, have been leveraged into what I call human exceptionalism, a kind of dominionist understanding of what it means to be human that really was the kind of the theological um, 
backbone of of early capitalism, and I think still is really what's driving. Um, it's kind of the the hidden faith or not so hidden faith of of Western capitalism. Um, but when I go back um, and and uh, you know reexamine and 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 try to rediscover these scriptural traditions with a different um, interest in mind um, after kind of unreading ourselves, reading ourselves out from under those interpretations of those couple verses, I find something what I call um, in the book earth creatureliness, um, which uh, is about uh, an understanding of what it means to be human that is close to the humus, uh, that is that is close to the earth, um, and uh, that uh, is a kind of it involves a kind of interdependence and interconnection. Um, you know, I I I love that second creation story in Genesis two, where you have this image of the human being formed from the topsoil, from the humus, uh, Adama, and uh, the Adam is formed from the Adama, and then. God breathes breath into this the nostrils of this of this lump of of dirt and uh, and it's animated into life and you know that's a really interesting theological anthropology um, uh, understanding of what it means to be human that we are intimately connected to uh, the earth on the one hand and animated into life that spirituality is in some sense being inspired, breathed into by the divine. And so there's this kind of intimacy with the divine and intimacy with the earth and interconnectedness, because this is how all life um, comes into being in this in this creation myth. And, you know, earth creatureliness, you probably recognize um, Phyllis Tribble's translation of of the of the Adam Ha Adam, who's who's created there as an earth creature coming from the earth in her. Okay, I didn't know, I didn't remember that that came from her. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's in God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality, a really really important book for me. Had a huge influence on me. Has a huge influence on me. And so then I you know try to go from there and explore other places within Hebrew scriptures where um, we can build on that. You know, for example, the ways in which um, a lot of biblical poetry and the prophets and the Psalms and other places, um, you know, personifies other other parts of, of creation and 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 develops almost a kind of human, non-human reciprocity and relationship there. And I what I try to argue is that um, is that these are that these these kinds of perspectives on earth creatureliness and in Hebrew scriptures really are traces of of indigenous religious culture that is behind these texts. And you and I know that's a complicated, it's complicated to try to work that out exactly. But I think that they do reflect a cultural context and a, a religious understanding that is connected to a particular local natural environment and that it is born from that yeah um there's 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 a lot there um you have a lovely chapter title i think called humus being um where you you get into that and then also talk about some of those poetic texts like in the prophets where the earth is seen to be uh, is, is taking part in mourning uh, mourning rituals and 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 humans are are just one part of that broader 
canvas on, on which that morning is taking place, which is really powerful. And this is not, you know, a one-off poetic device used by one prophet, but, but it occurs a number of times in, in the prophetic books. Yeah, I was thinking of it too with Hosea 4, where the earth um, mourns because of bloodshed uh, upon the earth and animals go hungry and they're panting after food. And, you know, there's this, there's this dismay, a creation-wide dismay um, that's, that's rooted in this connection between humans and the land. So human moral action and, and behaviors on the earth have some, I almost want to see a mystical connection to the physical world that gets at that sort of indigenous view, I guess, if you want to call it that, that you're, you're talking about. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So you, you talk in the book then, and this is part of what maybe brought an initial sense of sadness as I was reading it, but that's not where you want to land us necessarily. Um, but you talk about the need potentially to think in terms of a palliative approach to the planet, to hum humanity on the planet. Uh, the planet will go on uh, if humanity is snuffed out in the, in the next couple hundred years. Um, but you, you talk about a palliative approach is, quote, about learning to live with necessary pain and suffering, and at least as importantly, alleviating unnecessary suffering. It's about asking what matters most when one realizes that barring some kind of miracle, one's time is growing short. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that palli palliative approach. And maybe more specifically, how it relates to like hospice care and what that looks like in terms of an approach to humanity uh, on this planet. Yeah, I think I think you've you've said it very well in a nutshell. And I part of um, what I really want to be clear about with that analogy is that uh, I think that palliative care in in medicine is different from hospice insofar as palliative care. Um, as you just said, it's 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 taking it's it's recognizing that time may be short. Whether we're talking about you know as an individual, whether we're talking about a month or a year or five years, or maybe we don't know exactly, but recognizing that you know time is short, relatively speaking, and then re really rethinking priorities about what really matters on that kind of a horizon. It's not the same, you know. A lot of people hear palliative and they think you know morphine drip anesthetize from the the pain and the anxiety until you die um, and I you know I've had experiences with hospice care that are more like that you know when you go into hospice you're 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 very close to the end um, oftentimes right um, palliative care is is a broader more expansive I think way of, of understanding thinking about priorities and what matters most you know when time is short, um, I, I draw a lot from uh, um, a doctor named uh, B.J. Miller, um, who uh, did this amazing um, TED Talk, and now I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it, it's, um, it's pretty easy to find. It's one of the most popular <laughs> TED Talks of all time, where he really tries to articulate what this means and what are the design cues um, for us when it comes to palliative care. What are the things and, and that, that we can actually apply to, to any one of us can apply to our lives right now? Because it, as you said, and time is relatively short for any one of us, right? Um, so, you know, in some sense, living with an awareness that one is going to die is um, it can it can make life more meaningful and more hopeful um, in the present. So 
when I think about um, a palliative approach to the human future, trying to think analogously to that kind of approach in individual healthcare, I think about a couple things in particular, and and they're in that they're kind of in shorthand in that quote that you just read. But for one, you know, if if you know time is short um, as an individual, then a lot of what you need to work on is, on the one hand, uh, learning to to face and accept suffering that is necessary and inevitable. And on the other hand, uh, working to alleviate suffering that is that is not necessary, to alleviate unnecessary suffering and to accept necessary suffering. When I translate that into, you know, a conversation about our future as a species on the horizon of maybe, let's say, you know, several generations or something like that, um, or less or more, uh, I think we it, it it calls on us to reorient ourselves and re or uh, reorient our investments of of resources as well to alleviate unnecessary suffering. The, there is harm that is already happening. You know, we've seen it this last week in Pakistan and Puerto Rico and other places um, to alleviate unnecessary suffering. Um, that is happening now and that we know is coming, you know, because this is unfolding. If we did, if we, if we fixed everything and didn't have another, you know, ounce of carbon output for the rest of the human, of human history, we are going to be dealing with the unfolding consequences of where we are already. So harm that's happening now, injustice that's happening now, um, and, and that will happen, reorienting toward those and then learning to accept the kinds of, of suffering that are inevitable and necessary and that we cannot overcome or control without creating more more suffering in, in the process, right? And so um, so that's, that's one kind of, uh, I think, design cue for us, thinking about a palliative approach. Another, when someone is, is facing the end, you know, short-term, long-term, um, when time is short for an individual, a, a lot of times what they start working on is relationships. You know, they want to find forgiveness with that alienated family member or friend. They want to repair these relationships. They want to redeem their lives through these relationships, right? And again, it's not hard to translate that to um, to a, a, a species level, if you will, or to a national level or to a community community level or to a, you know, some other collective level and say, we should be working on forgiveness, we should be working on reparations, we should even if even if there's not that much time at all left, it's worth spending it on that, you know, we should. So I think there are ways that it reorients us to think of a palliative approach. And, and, and the other side of that, of course, is that in, in some really, you know, tragic and unfortunate circumstances, you have someone, you know, who is facing a chronic um, illness and facing, you know, uh, um, uh, death, um, where they will opt, let's say, for some optional surgery that is incredibly expensive money-wise that will probably create all kinds of pain and suffering for them in the process that will break their family's, you know, bank and make everyone miserable in the process. And it has like a, you know, 1% chance of prolonging their life by a month or two, right? To me, there are all kinds of examples of, of, of that kind of denial-driven um, 
stuff out there happening right now on the species level. I think Elon Musk's SpaceX is like a really, really expensive surgery that that has almost no chance of colonizing Mars and that, um, you know, uh, is, is is we could be using those resources in, in so much better ways. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you what you thought when you hear Elon Musk going on ad nauseum about you know, we must become an interplanetary species and, um, and, and presumably with him sort of leading at the helm, leading the way in that, not, not, not going to live there himself, but nonetheless, you know, one corporation sort of like spearheading that initiative, which itself is highly problematic. Um, but let alone the likelihood of it or of, of us, you know, thriving on Mars. It's just, um, it is. And it's, and it's easy to imagine all of the, you know, talk about bloodshed, all of the suffering and and misery of those, quote unquote, left behind. <laughs> right. Yeah. To go to a, a less habitable. And, and you talk about other immortality projects, as you call them in your in your book. So what are some and tr including transhumanism? Could you talk a little bit about those? And and you had a kind of like, yes, but to them. Um, so you're, you're not wholly dismissive of some of the concerns or um, ideas at play in the transhumanism discussion. I'm not very familiar with it. So I've just sort of hit the limit of what I know. <laughs> so why don't you talk about that a little bit more? Sure, no problem. Uh, well, first, I, I borrow that phrase immortality project from Ernest Becker uh, in the denial of death that's that's where he, um, he that's what he he uses two phrases immortality projects and immortality vehicles as um, you know the ways that we as individual humans try to live in denial of death uh, of our of our own mortality and he gives a few examples and of course you know something like you know uh, heaven when I'm gone or something could be one example of that. But and he does see see this operating in certain religious ideas, but he also sees it in like romantic love, like, you know, investing everything in this other person who is everything and kind of losing oneself in in love in that way. He sees it in, you know, um, uh, the artist who becomes immortal through her or his um, artwork after they're dead or, you know, putting your name on buildings or going to war, you know, to fight for, for, for the nation and sacrifice yourself for the greater good and holy war and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so I'm trying to kind of, again, translate that and think about, well, what do we, can we talk about immortality projects that are driven by denial um, of our, our, our finitude um, on the species level, and transhumanism is a is certainly um, a, a, to me a, a prime example of that. Uh, it's a it's a big movement, and it's hard to just you know lump it all together into the same thing. But the way I would describe it in the most general terms is that it's a movement that's interested in transcending our biological mortality. Um, through technology. And so is this the stuff that like Peter Thiel's involved in? Yeah, yeah, and uh yeah, the, uh, uh Rob Kurzweil, even right there you have a Max Moore, you have a huge range even just when we think about them because on the one hand there are folks who want to um you know sort of download our 
our my our brains as code and find another more durable um you know uh vehicle for for that um for that software than the wetware that our biological bodies are are you know terribly tragically and horrifyingly faulty and and prone to disease and death um, to be able to transcend our biological wetware that would be one example others like rob kurzweil with this idea of the singularity actually has something more mystical in mind where at some point really sort of big data and ai is going to take on sentience and we will be sort of part of that, but we will no longer have our kind of individual selves within that. It's, a, it's really almost like a kind of mysticism with, with him. But everything in between, and it's always, this, it's always this notion that, you know, through technology, we, um, we can transcend, you know, our bodily mortality. And the yes, but for me, Matt, is um, yes, but we are our bodies. And, you know, I mean, this is just another Cartesian split of mind and body and a real assumption that mind is who we are. That's our self. That's our ego. And that, um, you know, our bodies are, are, are jettisonable and we can kind of get, get beyond those. And I find that deeply problematic. On the other hand, as you say, I am very sympathetic to thinking about um, and trying to understand what I would call human machine coevolution or human tech coevolution. We've always been technological creatures and technology sort of functions as extensions of us in different ways. There's no way for that not to be true. We are also not just our bodies in that sense. We are also always kind of cyborgian sort of um, creatures because we're always hooking ourselves up to like we are right now to various devices and machines and we always have all the way back to you know rocks as hammers and stuff like that so um so i'm not i i understand it and i get the i get the the um the impulse and the desire but i really do believe it is sort of the quintessential immortality project and again extremely expensive and totally speculative right so um i can't remember if you deal i don't think you talked like tower babel and babylon genesis 11 in your book i'm, I'm just curious if, if you have particular reflections or ways that you think with genesis 1 to 11 more broadly about that subject well i love that story and i love teaching um, you know, doing kind of exegetical work with students around that story. Um, the first thing that kind of, I mean, I know we, we, we think of it as a story about, you know, hubris, human hubris and, and God sort of knocking them, knocking them back down. Um, <laughs> my first reading of that kind of jumps in on the, the we language that God uses because, you know, God, uses that first person plural language back in let us make humankind in our image, um, in our likeness. And, um, and so that's the first time. And then the second time is at the end of Genesis 3, look, they have become as one of us, or, and I do play with that phrase quite a lot in the book. Um, and so God says, whoa, I need to kick them out or they're going to Apparently, God, God likeness in that story is basically knowledge plus immortality, right? If you keep, if you have access to those two trees, you're going to be basically a god. Um, but uh, and so kicks them out of the garden so they can't get the the, the tree of life. Um, and then this is the third time. Uh, uh, let us go down there and um, 
and, and scramble their language or however, I haven't read it in a, in a little while, but you know what I'm saying, my own, in my own words, my, so uh, paraphrasing, but, but it's that us language and we language again there. And every time that comes up, those are the three. Um, it's, it's always a situation in, that has to do with similarity and difference between God and humans. And so that first one, let's create them in our image. Whoa, that's too much like us. And then again, it's a little too much like us in the Babel story too. Um, but when I think about what what the people are doing in that story, um, they're using technology to try to, um, this would be my reading anyway, to try to not get scattered, to try to you know stay together. That's what they say is their motivation not to aspire to be gods or to replace God, but rather lest we be scattered. And, you know, so, so that strikes me, I'm sympathetic to that. And then of course, God does exactly that <laughs> in response to it. So it's a failure of technology for sure. But. Yeah. Yeah. The new technology of, of the brick yes, <laughs> and, and right. mortar. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, but it is that like wrestling with technology and its potential, but also it's, um, tendency to get us thinking in terms of immortality projects because they they want to make a name for themselves, you know, something that lasts beyond their own death, presumably, and um, they, you know, that that project goes sideways, right? Unintended consequences. Yeah, yeah. Such rich reflections in Genesis one to eleven on Absolutely. on technology. So so we've talked about transhumanism, human exceptionalism. Um, I want to like bring us back to the the ground then after being up the tower there. You grew up in Alaska. You're born in Portland, grew up in Alaska. And in the book, I, I love some of the stories you you told about some really tense stories about uh, coyotes and grizzly bears. I'll let readers experience when they when they read the book. They're really fascinating. Um, I, t I told my wife the coyote story. Uh, that was that was just astonishing. Um, so let me just hear about you personally, like in what ways is Alaska in your system, uh, so to speak? Mm, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, I've pretty much spent my whole writing career trying to find an opportunity to tell my bear story. So <laughs> I finally, <laughs> I finally found the place, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that goes back to, to high school there, um, uh, so in so many ways, in so many ways, it, it shapes who I am. And, and I have goosebumps right now thinking about Alaska, which I miss and which, you know, I know I'll never live there again um, because my wife Clover is not interested at all <laughs> in moving to Alaska and winter, winter daylight hours of, you know, 1130 to 130 <laughs> in the midday every day. That kind of thing. That's a, that's a bit rough. It is, but it's you get the you get the you get the benefit in the summer of it being sunlight, you know, twenty four hours a day, and people have a great time. But um, yeah, so I, I um, a couple of things about that. I grew up uh, in conservative evangelical Christian culture up there. My parents were. Um, were uh, young life leaders in Oregon, and um, and so I grew up around that kind of parachurch youth movement stuff. And that my mom, in fact, was in, was one of the first full time 
young life leaders in in Oregon after college, and then uh, and then they were involved with Campus Crusade up in Alaska and you know Youth for Christ and all that stuff. So, and we went to a you know fairly conservative evangelical church, and that's a big part of of what I grew up with. I I would say I don't identify myself as conservative or evangelical. Probably now I'm definitely you know a Christian and teach Sunday school and all, all that kind of stuff. But um, I don't think those places would probably have me back. Um, but on the other hand, um, I owe a lot to, to, to that, to that culture that I grew up in. And I, I know that I, I, um, yeah, I just owe a lot of, of who I am to, to that. And I can think of, you know, particular aspects of that culture that have really shaped me. Um, and then on the other side, yeah, I grew up, uh, you know, um, up in the foothills of the Chugach Mountains um, and our backyard backed up against the Chugach State Park, which is massive. And then that backed up against Chugach National Forest, which is, you know, the second largest or the third largest forest in the United States. Um, and so, you know, I could literally have walked out. And is that near Anchorage? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Help me locate that. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. So Anchorage, you come out of Anchorage, two directions. You can come out of Anchorage toward, um, Palmer. And now we all know about Wasilla, thanks to Sarah Palin and, and on past there to, to Denali Park and, and, uh, Fairbanks and so forth. And then the other direction is the direction we lived and that's out, to the Cook Inlet outside out of, out of Anchorage to the Cook Inlet, which kind of runs along the Chugach mountain range and goes around and then ends up on the Kenai Peninsula. So we were out that way. And so literally, you know, I could have walked out the backyard of, of, of our house and walked, you know, a couple hundred miles to Valdez, maybe without running into another another person uh, along the way. So, you know, mountains, woods, grew up in a hunting culture. Uh, my father was a, a forester. Um, he was the supervisor of the Chugach National Forest and, you know, just a, a kind of woodsman in that in that classic sense. And so, yeah, it's just deep in me. I, I spent a, a lot of time, you know, by myself or with friends, um, in the woods growing up. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. I, um, I spent a summer in Alaska back in, I think it was 1998 might've been, can't remember exactly. Well, I was six, six weeks up there. I, in fact, I was there, I think for the 50th anniversary of the Alaska pipeline. Oh, I think uh -huh. I landed in, in a, in a town up in Glen Allen. Um, and, uh, they were having a, like the salmon bake yeah. that they have each summer. They were celebrating salmon and, and it was just, yeah, it was amazing. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I went down to Valdez, um, on a, like one of those little glacier tours that they have and did some hiking in the Talkeetna mountains. Right. Cause I had heard about, I read this, I, I loved like adventure stories growing up and I read about the, there's one short story I read called the Flyboys of Talkeetna is about all the, oh. um, the people that fly climbers to Denali and in all kinds of crazy conditions. Yeah. We, we, um, oh yeah, we knew a lot of those people and I'm trying to think of the, the name of the service that flies out of Talkeetna that we often, um, would use because my family would usually do a you know fly out hike back or hike out fly back to a lake somewhere and stay in a forest service cabin and but um 
we the, our family has five acres not far from Talkeetna, about um, maybe about ten maybe about, about ten miles, but no no trail to them uh, on a little uh, little pond, kind of at the foot of of Mount McKinley, and so that was a kind of safety thing, like because the, the the bush pilots will fly over that, taking the climbers to that south face. And, you know, if we had a problem or something, we could signal if there was like a health issue or something like that and they would know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, so you just were out there for the summer to to enjoy it? Or, yeah. yeah, well, I was helping. Um, I, I went went on like a work project uh, with my church at Alaska Bible College in Glen Allen, I think it was. And then and then spent a couple of weeks helping this guy move his house. He was he had a log cabin. He was physically moving it down the roads. So I was working with him. I can't even remember how I got hooked up with him. And then did some hiking and backpacking, things like nice. that. So, nice. Yeah, I just had a great time. Um, and you, you talk in your book uh, about your daughter, Sophie, then sort of, I don't know if this was in Alaska. Was that in Alaska where this happened? No, it was in St. Petersburg, Florida, the opposite. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, all right. So a little bit from Alaska. She She looked around one day. And just said, like, soon all of this will be gone. One of those moments where your kid just has this, like, laser clarity about totally. reality. So so what are some of the things that struck you about that and, and got you thinking and, you know, along the lines we've been talking in this book? Mm. Yeah. At one point, I thought about um, writing this book as a kind of a long form letter to Sophie's grandchild you know, as a, as a a kind of a a format for it. And I was going to start with that story. Your great grandmother, you know, said, uh, once did this, but yeah, you know, uh, I mean, those of us with kids or who know little kids were often just kind of blown away by, by the things that come out of their mouths and and the things they, they create and do. And, and so this was totally out of the blue. I mean, we were driving down this pretty, Boulevard in St. Petersburg, Florida, that's just green and lush. And there are these live oak trees everywhere, you know, um, and there's this playground we're driving past with parents and grandparents and kids crawling all over the place and bright colors and beautiful blue sky. And we're just kind of driving along and Sophie's in the back with her little brother of our Subaru station wagon. And um, and just kind of smiling. And she said it smilingly. She just sort of had a little smile on her face and said, soon all of this will be gone. <laughs> and we just look at each other like Clo- Clover and I like, did she just say what we what I think she said? And uh, and then we just kind of <laughs> kind of went on from there. But, you know, it always has stuck with me. And um, I, I think when I you know, she wasn't an anxious child at all. And she didn't say it in a way that was, you know, doom and gloomy or, or, or that seemed like an expression of anxiety. But uh, I've thought about it a lot. And I, I just wonder, this is just a question, I don't know, but maybe if children are maybe a little more in touch with our fleetingness, our transience are here today gone tomorrowness and maybe the rest of everything else could might feel more precarious that way too then um and then maybe as we get older we kind of tuck that away maybe that's part of part of the denial that we're talking about in in some way um so that's one that's one thought about that but yeah she's in divinity school now so um uh she's uh, and doing great um 
but uh, in fact, really interested in biblical studies. Um, I come back to her at the end of the book in a little epilogue just to kind of have a conversation about that. Like, what do you remember about that? And what do you think now? And, and yeah. That's great. I discussed your book with uh, some of my students at Regent College and uh, where, where I teach, and uh, they had some really insightful observations. And so I, I wanted to just share in kind of bullet point form some of the things that this prompted in them and, and just ask you to kind of respond to what they had to say. Um, and you don't have to respond to everything that they, they brought up, but I, I just thought I'd share some of these with you yeah. um, about your, the, the thesis of your book. So let me go through these. Um, so one student shared how the book's thesis about palliative care uh, reminded him of Holy Saturday where Mary Magdalene and Mary go and anoint Jesus dead body. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, not knowing necessarily this wasn't like a, a down payment on the resurrection for them is just honoring, honoring the body of Jesus. Um, uh, another student who uh, actually worked for decades as an ecologist and, and she talked about how in ecology, they use another prominent medical analogy, which is triage where ecologists think in terms of, which species to try to assist and which to let die. And uh, that was another striking image because of the acceleration of species extinction and our inability to use heroic language to save each species. Um, another uh, thing it prompted in us was just our relationship to the finitude of other things as well, not just ourselves or our species, but also like what uh, dying churches. Mm. Uh, what does it look like to apply this thinking to pastoring a dying church yeah you know where let's say the congregation's elderly or just there's this sort of obvious you know rapidly declining uh, population in the church uh, so another observation was while living toward and not denying death is important another student also wondered what it means to live in light of what came before so we can deny what is coming and we can deny what came before Another student from India noted that for him, he's used to, he grew up with kind of two extremes toward the physical world. On the one hand, all the world is a God. And on the other hand, it's all an illusion. And, you know, how this thesis might sit in that view. Mm. And then another question that came up was, how confident are you that facing death squarely will lead to care and not a kind of live and let live approach to the planet? I've thrown a lot at you there yeah. and um, just wondering if you have any kind of re reflections on, on those perspectives that the students brought. Yeah. I was taking some notes, so I didn't forget that. That's um, that's uh, wow. What a gift to have that. I really appreciate it. And I, and you probably know, I I've, I've written this book really in conversation with my own students. I teach a, a course on religion and ecology every, uh, every year. And ever since I had a book proposal for it, I've been sharing whatever I have and getting their feedback. So it's very much been shaped by, by my conversations with, with students. So I really, really appreciate this. Yeah. The, the Holy Saturday comment and anointing the body, um, that brings up so much for me. Uh, first, I, I think, well, um, there's just, a, there's a, there's a, a comfortableness and even a dutifulness of care to around death 
and around uh, dead bodies that is so foreign to our modern Western culture that is just absolutely freaked out about dead bodies and about death. And we have all of this industry around us to keep them away from us. Um, and it's really only been over the last hundred or more years that we've, well, you, you probably know Gary uh, Laterman uh, from Emory, who's done a lot of work on this in the religion department, the rise of the funeral industry over against how it was part of the work of of the of the pastor and of the church and of the community um and and that story ties more into that that former way it also for me suggests that you know the church and the the christian church and christian communities specifically and religious communities more broadly have a role in where we are headed um insofar as we have the resources and the rituals, because this was ritual work they were doing. We have rituals and other resources for dealing with with death and finitude and with grief and with um, sadness, as you say, and and those things related to finitude and death and and ending. Um, and I think we we could maybe step up um, and and be uh, you know be able to to help others. And in that way, I want to jump to the last one and then I'll come back around because how confident are we that it's not just going to be a free-for-all and you know like the <laughs> some of the scenes in the end of don't look up the the movie where you know people are having orgies and doing wild things and you know it's just pandemonium um versus and or just you know screw it I'm not gonna uh, you know there's no point in trying versus what what your student asked about like how how confident am I that that there could be care and there could be intentionality um, and really paying attention to what really matters. And to me, that's a question of, 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 of activism. And that's, that's a, a call to us to be prepared to do that work because of course there will be all kinds of responses and there will be, you know, people, I think we already are seeing it with climate trauma, right? A lot of young people are experiencing climate trauma and climate grief and are paralyzed by it. And so we have the opportunity to, to help people work through that grief and trauma and to find ways to move forward and to live meaningfully. And so I think hope has to be active. You can't, it's not just a, a, a gamble. Well, I'm hoping it's this way. Maybe it'll be this way. It's a 70% chance or something. It's about, it's about doing the kind of work around that um, to, to be hopeful. So that's that, la that was that last comment. Back up to, um, to triage, um, which is really interesting and makes total sense. And we definitely hear that a lot these days um, in, in environmental policy, environmental activism even, in, in, uh, environmental management. Um, and I've had some conversations with folks around that. And it's a kind of cost-benefit sort of um, discussion. It parallels the ones we're having in uh, around healthcare and health insurance. When you have limited resources, do you do you focus them on the the the, the most urgent, you know, disease that's happening to a few people, or do you focus it on what can help a lot of people? Those are hard questions, and obviously are part of of what we need to be talking about. Um, the relationship of of um, what. The finitude of, of ourselves and others in terms of finitude and and the and dying churches i think that's really interesting because i i ended up finding myself thinking a lot about that too because of course those of us who know 
of dwindling smaller and smaller churches, um, especially when they have like an endowment or other resources to keep going, even if there are no more members. Um, you know, this is like, that's it's denial. It's like being on life support. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's total denial driving that. And um, uh, I have a good friend and colleague, Alana Cooper, who's in my department, who is um doing this, she's in Judaic studies and she's doing this work around dying congregations and how they process that and how they work through that. She's an anthropologist of religion who's doing that work. And there are lots of really interesting parallels there to other ways that we learn or don't, don't learn to accept our finitude and live intentionally into it. Um, so that's a that's a great great insight great comment um denying what came before as well as what comes after i assume that student was picking up on where i was talking about the anthropocene and that the planet will go on without us and was here a long time before us and i think that's yeah really important because that's another sort of expression of human exceptionalism all of this is for us it was just this big stage that was created for us so we don't need to care about what what was before that was just like the roadies you know setting up the setting up creation for us and now we're on the we're on the stage and it'll last as long as we need it to and then when we're gone it doesn't matter you know take it back down so i think that's a really great insight um i love the 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 comment that I, to me it's an insight that on the one hand everything is god on the on the other hand everything is illusion which is both to me both kind of inspiring and humbling at the same time this sort of paradox so i think i'm grateful for that i'm going to keep thinking about that I think that was all. Yeah, Tim, <laughs> you're good on the fly. Um, yeah, another question. I just as we as we round our discussion, I was thinking about kind of kept coming up through the book because you you note how religion can um, and Christianity in particular can be a vehicle for death denial, um, particularly with a uh, certain views of the afterlife, but but also within a palliative care environment or let's say even a hospice environment the hope of resurrection can be part of that care as well. And so, so I'm wondering like if you, where do you situate these hopes of an afterlife or a restored creation? Are these all about death denial or how can you, is there a way that you think those can be embraced in a way that, that also faces death squarely? Yeah. It's such a good and important question, and clearly I, I intentionally sort of bracketed that question out in some ways. I mean, and I think, yes, there's the version of it that you just described, a sort of, you know, what, what many Christians um, believe in terms of, you know, this I that is me, this ego, I'm going to be with God forever pretty much as I know myself now, or maybe in some sort of... Uh, idealized or optimized form as Augustine imagined it. Um, but but then there are others, I mean, even, you know, someone who's more of a process theologian, for example, who, who imagines that, you know, this kind of omega point or this kind of Christ consciousness that we embody that makes us part of this story in a kind of, you know, in another kind of immortal afterlife way. And other kinds of mysticism where you might not maintain your ego self, but are nonetheless part of everything 
of the of the all that is God. Um, that's a that that too is a kind of afterlife. And I, you know, I I didn't go there, and I'm really interested in the the question the way you put it because I have a lot of friends um, who um, have that that kind of a belief, and I don't believe that it has to be a form of denial or that it is a way of, you know, putting on blinders. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a big environmental movement among evangelicals now. And while it tends to still sort of focus on stewardship, which to me maybe gives humans a little too much credit for have being very good at controlling things and being stewards, but nonetheless, um, you know, that's certainly, uh, you know, that kind of environmental activism isn't bracketed out by, a belief that you're you're going to be with God forever after you die, um, and so I, I'm really kind of wanting to wanting others to have those conversations um, with me who who carry those beliefs. And one of my close friends, who was one of my teachers and was my wife Clover's mentor in college, Rob Wall. He's a um, a biblical scholar, a New Testament scholar, who is now retired from Seattle Pacific University. And that was the first thing he asked me um, was, you know, what, what, you know, this is what I believe. What, what do, you know, does that, can I not be part of this conversation? And of course he can. And so he's brought it to his reading group and they're talking about exactly that question now. So I'm looking forward to hearing. And that was definitely something that came up in our discussion as well when I talked about it with students. And, it, and it's interesting because uh, for those of us with a view of resurrection and afterlife, we still have Ecclesiastes in our canon. And so Ecclesiastes is a very like face you with a view under the sun perspective on reality. I I, th I thought you, you might go into Ecclesiastes more than you did. Maybe you had to like leave it on the cutting floor a little more or something like that. Um, but but does that have a place in your thinking about this subject when you're thinking about biblical resources or facing death? I, I, it does. And yeah, it, it, it didn't quite make the book. I mean, it would have been another analogy the way I think of Ecclesiastes because it's about individual, it's about individual mortality and, and, and a kind of individual coming to terms with that. And, you know, that amazing, the the final lines you know wh whether you read it as remember your creator or whether you read it as remember your grave <laughs> in your younger days um uh and i've written on that in the past and um there's a lot there because that that the image is there at the end of ecclesiastes as i recall it's been a while since i've gone back and read it closely but it's also a kind of image of of social and cosmological collapse that's that's tied in some way to individual mortality um in a way that reminds me of um what like you know isaiah 24 to 27 or that that little apocalypse as it's mm -hmm. called in mm -hmm. isaiah where social injustice and bloodshed is tied to the kind of breakdown of of creation so there's a lot there and yeah i didn't um not this time maybe next time <laughs> <laughs> yeah there, there's something mournful about that last uh, poem, uh, which is a contemplation on death. Well, Tim, thank you uh, so much. There's, there's a lot more in this book, and I definitely recommend uh, people uh, have a read of When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. And uh, Tim, thank you for this discussion. I really appreciate it. Well, Matt, thank you. It was really fun and interesting. And, you know, thank, make sure you thank your students, too, because I really appreciated those, those insights and questions. Will do. Thanks. 
You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate. 